Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello again. My name is Eva Colson, and I am back with Dr. Vin Dow to tackle part two of urine drug screening, or UDS. Today, we're going to be discussing some of the more nuanced and complex issues surrounding urine drug screening and how providers can apply these principles to their practice. If you're just starting out in the world of pain and urine drug screening, we're going to encourage you to go take a listen to our Become a Whiz at Urine Drug Screening Part 1 that was posted in the ASHP podcast channel in January of 2022. A little bit about me. I am a pain management clinical pharmacist working on an acute pain service at Cahuilla Health located in Visalia, California. Thank you, Dr. Colson. I'll quickly introduce myself. As Dr. Colson said, my name is Vin Dow, but everyone just calls me Vinny. Uh, for the better part of the last decade, I served as a clinical pharmacist providing pain management and opioid stewardship in ambulatory and acute settings. More recently, I've taken on a role as program manager of our telepain team that serves the Midwest region for our health systems network. It's great to be back to talk urine drug screens with you again, Dr. Colson. Um, I learned so much from you when we discussed urine drug screens for opioid therapy in our first podcast. Um, sometimes in practice, we get questions about dual acting agents such as tramadol and tapentadol. What are your thoughts on urine drug screens for those agents? Love this question. So I found in my practice, tramadol and dependadol often get put into a class of their own when we're talking about medications of abuse and conducting urine drug screening. Since 2014, tramadol has been a schedule for controlled substance. There are significant risks that come with tramadol. However, they are not always the same risks that we think of on some of our other full opioid agonists, such as morphine, oxycodone, and some of the others. Tramadol, I think, kind of gets considered a safe, and I'm going to put that in quotes, um, opioid. And pain pharmacy specialists know that tramadol actually comes a lot of times with its own set of baggage. And this can include increased seizure risk, the risk of serotonin syndrome concerns, and also the conundrum that comes with urine drug screenings do not always detect for these metabolites in the actual results, especially with an immunoassay test. A lot of times, tramadol is not going to show up as a, a confirmed result on a urine drug screen. And a lot of times, it will take a special test to detect the tramadol. Um, and sometimes, these tests can cost $90, $100, and they have to be sent out, and they have to be confirmed by the laboratory. Uh, and, and the outpatient test is not always covered by insurance. And so, a lot of times, these costs get passed along to the patient. So is it really worth it to do all these tests to pass along these additional costs to patients? Well, the 2016 CDC guidelines recommend that if a patient is being prescribed an opioid medication, it's important to monitor compliance with that medication at regular intervals. In short, if you're giving this medication, it's fairly important that you are managing this medication and its use and making sure that it's being appropriately taken. So if you are dispensing this medication and giving and making sure or being responsible for this medication, it's your obligation to ensure that it's appropriately being utilized and ensuring it's compliant. Dr. Dow, multiple urine drug metabolite results can sometimes come up. So what should we do when some of these drugs, drugs that require confirmation testing, um, 
come up and like, what did we do when the results show confirmation testing or don't show what we're expecting? How do you detect adulteration and what are some of the normal urine values that we can expect? Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Colson, for that question. Um, Some of the limitations, as many of us are aware of immunoassay screens arise due to reactivity, you know, agents in other drug classes with chemical structures that are very similar to the substances you're trying to detect will result in a false, false positive. Conversely, slight variation in chemical structure in the substances you're trying to detect may elude immunoassays resulting in a false negative. For substances where our clinical question is simply whether the patient is using the substance and there is low incidence of false positives or false negatives, confirmation testing is typically not necessary. Examples include cannabis, um, otherwise abbreviated as THC, or cocaine. But confirmation is often useful. The benzodiazepine immunoassays typically detect substances um, that are included in the diazepam metabolism pathway, such as temazepam, but they'll miss many commonly prescribed benzodiazepines, such as alprazolam, lorazepam, clonazepam. So this is why gas chromatography and liquid chromatography or mass spectrometry confirmation is such a useful secondary tool. By analyzing the mass of the substance found within a sample, specific substances can be determined as can their concentration. And often the presence of metabolites to parent compounds can be reported as well. And this often assists clinicians in detection of adulteration attempts. It can also verify false positives. And adulteration occurs when patients attempt to fool urine drug screens by tampering with the sample. And this can occur in vivo, which means inside the body. The patient has ingested or added something inside their body to alter um, their um, urine drug sample. Or in vitro, which is the patient may have provided a sample already and now is attempting to adulterate the sample once it's been outside of the body. The presence of metabolites is one way of detecting adulteration attempts. We know that for many drugs, the body converts that drug into a different substance. And when there is an absence of that secondary metabolic product, then it's a sign that that drug was never in the body in the first place. The other way to look at the properties, the other ways to detect adulteration is to look at the properties of the urine sample itself. Normal urine values for reference are a volume that's greater than 30 milliliters, a temperature that's somewhere between 90 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, a pH level of 4.5 to 8, urine creatinine greater than 20 milligrams per deciliter, and specific gravity greater than 1.003. Typically, nitrates are below 500 micrograms per mil. Any kind of significant deviation in any of these values could be a concern then for adulteration. But there are times when even confirmation tests can't explain the results. Um, Many clinicians report that patients who they're pretty certain are reliably taking their opioids still test negative. One of these examples are patients who are prescribed buprenorphine or butrans patch, they actually often test negative despite the fact that we can see they are wearing the patch. Dr. Colson, any thoughts on why these patients are testing negative for substances, including butrans patch or other opioids? Well, let's start with buprenorphine for the treatment of pain. Marmon and colleagues in 2015 published a result of a liquid chromatography and mass spec assay urine results for patients using the transdermal and the sublingual buprenorphine formulations. 
They found that all of the sublingual patients were found to have at least one metabolite of buprenorphine, but only 69% of the transdermal buprenorphine patients had a corresponding metabolite despite having their patch verified as being in place. The most common metabolite that they found with the transdermal group was the buprenorphine glucuronide versus the norbuprenorphine glucuronide, which was found with the sublingual patients. So now, even though the more expensive liquid chromatography mass spec assays were completed, they were still not sensitive enough to detect that transdermal buprenorphine metabolite result. Even the package insert on the buprenorphine transdermal patch has the caveat stating that not every urine drug screen will be able to reliably detect synthetic or semi-synthetic opioids. So what do you do for a urine drug screen of a patient on a transdermal buprenorphine patch um, as it may not reliably tell you exactly what the patient is taking or confirm that the patient does have that transdermal patch in place? Well, whenever you're thinking about testing a patient with urine drug screening for a transdermal buprenorphine patch, it may be best to check the patient's supply of patches and then visually ensure that the patch is in place as those UDS results may not always give you great confirmatory testing results. Now, medications like methadone, the major metabolite is going to be EDDP which is not something that shows up in the standard five amino acid as a metabolite. So clinicians who are wanting to test for methadone compliance are going to need to work with their lab to obtain an expanded opiate panel in order to detect the methadone metabolite for confirmatory testing. Bert Holf and colleagues published an article in 2016 regarding positive predictive values of drug screening in an urban outpatient population. Now, this study found that positive predictive value for methadone screening is actually only about 44.1%, indicating that there could be quite a few or a high number of false positive results. So in short, the specificity and sensitivity of bu both buprenorphine and methadone using a standard urine drug screen may not be adequate enough for specialized specific testing. And it may be beneficial for patients when monitoring compliance to do pill counts or patch checks, especially with these two opioid medications. Now, I always learn a lot from you talking about urine drug screens and our favorite marijuana or THC. Can you talk to us a little bit about more information on that? Sure, Dr. Colson. Um, as mentioned earlier, in the case of cannabis, more oftentimes than not, the clinical question is simply whether the patient uses cannabis and or not. And a confirmation is usually not necessary. Um, however, there is a unique instance where a confirmation is useful. And that's when the question isn't just whether if the patient is using cannabis, but whether if the patient has used cannabis recently. Many patients disclose cannabis use, but make clinical commitments to abstain from further use. Um, but THC can be detected in the urine for up to one to two months, particularly if there was chronic daily use. And for clinicians who are following patients and are interested in whether patients have ongoing new cannabis use, a confirmation test can quantify the THC concentration. So this is where things get a little bit complicated because concentration of THC in a urine drug sample is highly dependent on hydration. 
Thus, it's not as simple as assuming that a higher THC concentration in a recent sample compared to a previous sample means that there was recent cannabis use. But one method that we can use to predict that is by using the THC to urine creatinine ratio. The inclusion of urine creatinine in the calculation standardizes standardizes hydration between two samples. So when you obtain an initial screen, you get the initial ratio by placing the THC level in the numerator and the urine creatinine in the denominator. We'll just call that number T1. Uh, You repeat this process with a subsequent sample collected in the future, and we'll call that number T2. Now, for a lack of better terms, you do a ratio to ratios. And what I mean by that is you compare T2 to T1. And if that ratio is less than two, it is unlikely that there has been new or recent cannabis use. Be mindful that this method of predicting use should never be used for punitive reasons as the correlation is a probability curve and not confirmatory. So as the T2 to T1 ratio exceeds two, it simply becomes more probable that new use has occurred, but there is still no certainty. Thank you so much for that great information. Now I have one last question. As an expert in the pain field, can you talk to us about maybe disparity in urine drug screening and as it results to ethnicity? Yeah, certainly. You know, given the renewed scrutiny on disparity and inequality that can exist in healthcare, I feel it's important that we discuss how bias and inequality can occur in relation to urine drug screens. Urine drug screens are an important tool and should always be initiated for patients of all demographics when necessary to ensure patient safety. Now, one of our pain management and palliative care residents a couple of years ago, Dr. Esther Najau, examined this disparity and found data that shows for patients under 65 years old who identified as Black or African-American, they're less, less likely to receive opioid analgesics when compared to other ethnic groups. There is the real possibility that in this demographic, there is a risk then of having undermanaged pain. Data also suggested that when patients who identified as Black or African-American are prescribed opioids, they face more intense scrutiny with a higher prevalence of required urine drug screens, office visits, and restrictions on refills. In addition, this demographic of patients were also more likely than other ethnic groups to have long-term opioid therapy discontinued if a urine drug screen was positive for cocaine or cannabis. So we really need to work together as healthcare professionals to educate and bring awareness to start to bridge this disparity. I totally agree. And Dr. Dow, I always learned so much talking with you. So thank you. And today, that is all that we have time for. I want to thank you all for joining us today to discuss becoming a whiz at urine drug screens part two. And if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Ambulatory Care Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and the Research Resource Center along with clinical pharmacy resources and so much more. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Hot Topics in Pharmacy, and we hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP's podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe. 
rate or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.